Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, it is a special retrospective on the year 2021, at least in movies, and I go through the same kind of difficulty for this show that I do for um, other best and worst shows that I've done in the past. Namely, I have to pick 10 of the best movies, and I usually give myself a little bit more... um, leniency towards the worst movies because they're funny to rip on, especially since they either took money and most especially they took time out of my life that I'm never going to get back. I'm going to get to the worst films of the year at the very uh, end of the show, but I'm just kind of um, going through the list of the top 10 best films of the year. But first, before I get to that, let me just tell you how I thought 2021 was as a whole. Not just in terms of movies, but also in terms of everything. And I got to say that 2021 was off to a particularly bad start with a certain event that happened on January 6th. But the year got progressively better. Of course, I'm not one of those people who lived in the path of either a hurricane, a wildfire, or a tornado. Obviously, the people who did, it was bad year. It was a bad year for them. But I feel like 2021 was an improvement, albeit a slight improvement over 2020. We most people had access to the vaccines, so we were able to get out a little bit more. Fortunately for a movie lover like me, movie theaters were open again. And while I am not absolutely not against streaming, I do have to say that I get the whole movie experience from going to the movies. And even with the Omicron variant spreading around right now, I'm still not going to completely stop going to the movies, uh, but I will be careful as I advise you, the listening audience, to do as well. Even though I am vaccinated and boosted, something I would have killed to have been a year ago, um, and I, I got my first dose of the vaccine in April of last year, so that was one of probably the best things that happened to me last year, I still go to the movie theaters, distance myself from people I don't know as much as possible, and I still wear a mask when I'm around people, and I hope that you do the same as well. Now, why the Omicron variant is spreading as rapidly as it is, I don't exactly know. Is it spreading around people who actually take their precaution by wearing a mask when they go out in public? Maybe. Is it spreading more around people who refuse to be vaccinated or refuse to get boosted? Not necessarily. But, of course, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I couldn't be able to go on CNN and give you an accurate portrayal or an accurate presumption about what is going on out there in the world of the, um, the pandemic. But one thing I will tell you is that the pandemic is not over yet. I think of, of course the, the spreading of the, 
vaccines and especially the availability of the boosters to more and more people have already made 2021 a, a better year overall than 2020. I could go into politics here, but I'm not going to do that. I've been political on my show before, but I'm not going to do that right now because I just think it's it's important to focus on well, movies for a movie show. So that is what I'm going to do. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now it's time to get into my top 10 favorite films of the year. And it's one of those things where I sit down and I write a list of the movies that I know I really loved. And I always, every single year, write down more than 10. So I have to whittle it down to 10, and that is really not easy to do. And also, I have that fear being an amateur critic like I am. In other words, I don't get paid for watching movies or doing a show that I do yet. Maybe that'll happen in the future, I hope. But um, I always have that fear that I'm leaving something out, that there's something out there that I haven't seen. So I'm not saying that my top 10 list is the, t- the top 10 undisputed best films of the year with me having seen just about every film out there. But it is my opinion, and I do rank these based on what I've seen. Now, I do have that fear that there are movies out there in the movie theater that I miss, and I'm always reticent that I will forget one to put on my top 10 list. But that's not the case um, this time. I-, I would probably say that with all the available platforms for movies, not just the movie theaters, but also streaming most especially, there's probably going to be something out there I miss. But I think I picked out all the good ones, at least a vast majority of the good ones. So I'm going to start off with my 10th best film of the year, according to me. And this one was from director Ridley Scott, and it was one of many films that was supposed to be released in theaters last year, but it didn't get the chance. But Ridley Scott actually, to his credit, uh, released two huge movies this year, and both of them happened to co-star Adam Driver, and that is not easy to do, both directing two major films in a year and also getting Adam Driver to be in your movie, because Adam Driver is a hot commodity. But my my 10th favorite film of the year is The Last Duel. This is based sort of on a true story, but some artistic uh, liberties have been taken into account, where King Charles the sixth of France declares that knight Jean de Carroge settle his dispute with a squire by challenging him to a duel. This is a movie that reminded me a lot of sort of a medieval Rashomon. And what I mean by that is in a sense, maybe Rashomon, um, 
directed by Akira Kurosawa, delved more into the bizarre and ironic psychology of what people actually remember, even if what they remember is drastically different from what actually happened. The Last Duel does touch upon that to a certain extent, but it's also a love story at first that turns into a medieval legal drama that turns into a medieval sword fight when the trial goes down to one man's word against another's. And I loved Matt Damon in this as King Charles the sixth, excuse me. Um, I loved, uh, Matt Damon here as Sir Jean de Carroge and Adam driver here as, uh, Jacques Legree, who are two at first, um, at first they are friends and then they become adversaries, particularly when Adam Driver's character hits on um, Marguerite de Carroge, who's played in a groundbreaking performance by Jodie Cormer, which I think is her best performance to date. She's also in what I think is one of the worst films of 2021, but I'll get to that later. But I loved everything about this film from the story to the acting and especially the groundbreaking sword fight in the end. So the last duel was a really great film for me. And it's number 10 in my most favorite films of the year. Number nine, most favorite films of the year is the remake of West side story. This is a movie that had a very tough act to follow, not only coming after a great adaptation of the 1957 Broadway musical, but it's coming after a movie that that was the winner of 10 Academy Awards. I don't think that this version of West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg, will be nominated for as many Academy Awards, let alone win, but it does have a lot of things going for it. I think it was a very faithful adaptation of the musical with the music written by uh, Leonard Bernstein, lyrics written by Stephen Sondheim, and the stage play written by Arthur Lorenz. But just about everyone in this film is fantastic. I thought that Ansel Egghort and Rachel Zegler made a great uh, duo with amazing chemistry together. But one of the most standout performances, besides Rita Moreno, the only cast member here who was also in the original, was... Ariana DeBose, who has an even tougher act to follow coming after not only Rita Moreno's great performance as Anita in the original, but also one that won Rita Moreno an Academy Award. But I have the feeling that Ariana DeBose, if she doesn't win, she's at least going to be nominated. Not only was she fun and sexy in some of the uh, dance numbers, particularly um, the America one, but I also thought during some of the most dramatic moments, she really shined. Ariana DeBose is one of those triple threats. I loved her in this movie, but I love just about um, everyone in this film as well. And for Steven Spielberg not to have directed a musical before this one, he adds this genre into the genres at which he's probably best at directing. And I mean, action films, sci-fi and historical dramas. He also proved that he's really good at musicals. And that is saying a lot considering that he'd never directed one before. And before I get to number eight, I just got to say 
that 2021 was a great year for musicals, it seemed. There are some musicals that fell short, like Dear Evan Hansen, which, rest assured, is not going to make my best films of 2021, but... Dear Evan Hansen was one of the exceptions. And even though it it fell short of being great, I could definitely see the effort behind it, and I won't fault that film entirely. But going on with my list of best films of the year, number eight is another musical, but this time it is an animated musical, and that musical is Encanto. This is probably one of Disney's most original films, and it is certainly one of its most diverse. It tells the story of a a young Colombian girl who has to face the frustration of being the only member of her family without magical powers. Now, not only is it very impressive, the unique and diverse magical powers that this young Colombian girl, uh, Mirabelle, who's played or who's voiced by Stephanie Beatrice, not only are their powers very unique and also very mesmerizing, and not only is the animation great, as you probably expect from a Disney musical, but also this film is chock full of of characters and with the fantastic music in it written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who at least wrote the uh, lyrics for this music, uh, not necessarily the music itself. But I felt like by the end of the first song, I knew every single character at least marginally well, which I couldn't exactly say about the MCU movie, the Eternals. And I, I actually thought that the Marvel extended un- or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I should say, should take a note from Encanto alone to let people know how to introduce characters without a sounding like a worksheet and b without having people be absolutely confused. But I loved the voice talent in this movie. I love the animation. Of course, Stephanie Beatrice is a young. Uh, voice over artist, but we're probably going to hear a lot more of her, if not see her. But there are also some really good supporting performances by the likes of Mario Cecilia Botero, John Leguizamo, Jessica Darro, Diane Guerrero, Angela Cepeda, and th- that's that what's, that's what makes Encanto not only one of the best musicals of the year, but one of the best films of the year, at least according to me. Number seven is actually another musical, and this one also featured the talents of Lin-Manuel Miranda, and I'm not just talking about acting talent either. This is an adaptation of the Broadway musical that put Lin-Manuel Miranda on the map in terms of the area around 42nd Street, but not necessarily nationwide. That that was probably um, until Hamilton, but... Um, In the Heights is my number seven best film of the year. It is, as I said, a film version of the Broadway musical in which Asnavi, a sympathetic New York bodega owner, who's played very well in this movie by Anthony Ramos, or Antonio Ramos, but he's credited as Anthony Ramos. This New York bodega owner saves every penny every day as he imagines and sings about a better life. The movie is directed also by John Chu, who I don't believe had directed uh, any other film or any other musical before this. He's actually directed uh, Crazy Rich Asians, and he also directed a few other um, 
less than stellar movies like Now You See Me Too or Gem and the Holograms. But Crazy Rich Asians was a fantastic film, one of my favorite films of 2018. And In the Heights shows he can also direct a musical incredibly well. And of course, the music and lyrics of this movie, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who also has an understated role in this film as uh, somebody who uh, serves uh, slushies in Washington Heights. But this this movie brought Washington Heights to life and... The music in the film, as well as the choreography, not to mention the acting, was also really fantastic, which is one of the reasons that In the Heights was one of the best musicals of 2021 and number seven on my list of best films of the year. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, continuing with my list of the top 10 best films of the year, according to me. And this is amongst the films that I've seen. So just to recap for you, number 10 best film of the year, according to me, The Last Duel. Number nine, the remake of West Side Story. Number eight, Encanto. Number seven, In the Heights. And number six, we had three uh, musicals in a row because I I declared that 2021 was a great year for musicals. And number six is actually, unfortunately, my last musical of my list, but I still enjoyed it nonetheless, and I think it's one of the best films of the year. And that movie is Tick, Tick, Boom. This is another movie that is also based on uh, at least a a show that started in Off-Broadway and also involved the collaboration of Lin-Manuel Miranda. And this is the semi-true story set to music about Jonathan Larson, the playwright who in the late 80s and early 90s was struggling like mad um, in (laughs) in the apartments of New York trying to get a hit musical together. And Tick, Tick, Boom is actually not about his writing Rent. It is about him writing another musical, and this is mostly a true story. So, on the cusp of his 30th birthday, Jonathan Larson, who's played here by Andrew Garfield in his best performance ever, uh, a promise, he's a promising young theater composer who navigates love, friendship, and the pressures of life as an artist in New York City. Now, not only is the music in this film fantastic, as you would expect from the playwright who brought you Rent, but... Andrew Garfield, I think, um, encapsulates a, a struggling artist. There really isn't anything that's sugarcoated about trying to make it on Broadway as a playwright here and trying to exert all your energy to make proverbially a stone bleed. And there are also some great supporting performances, both in 
talking as well as in singing by Al- Alexandra Ship, who plays Jonathan Larson's girlfriend, Susan, who may or may not be a composite character, I don't know. There's also his best friend, Robin de Jesus, who plays Michael, and Vanessa Hudgens, who has proven from her days in High School Musical that she can sing. Can she act? I was convinced of her acting performance in here, and she certainly is a dynamic force with which to be reckoned in here. And there are also some very good, albeit brief supporting performances by the likes of Judith Light, Bradley Whitford playing Stephen Sondheim, who wasn't late when the movie came out, but Stephen Sondheim is now late um, as um, of November 26th, 2021. God rest Stephen Sondheim's talented soul. There's also special appearances by Laura Benanti, Bernadette Peters, Patti LuPone, and other stalwarts of the Broadway scene. I really enjoyed Tick, Tick, Boom, and Best Musical of the Year, and my top number six of the best films of 2021. Number five is a movie that's not exactly a musical, but it definitely involves music. And it is a movie, a documentary actually, that's called Summer of Soul, which premiered in some theaters, but it also premiered on Hulu on July 2nd. This is a movie that is directed by Questlove, and it tells the true story of the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which, unlike Woodstock or the Rolling Stones concert at the Altamont Speedway, did not take place over a weekend, but let a, but it actually took place amongst several weekends. And it starred, or it featured on the stage, just about everyone um, in African-American music who was big at the time, including but not limited to Sly and the Family Stone, The Fifth Dimension, the Staple Singers, and it features Stevie Wonder playing the drums. I knew he played piano. I knew he played harmonica. I had no idea he could play the drums, let alone playing it in front of a captive audience and play them so well. And he did this on July 20th, 1969, the exact same day that man landed on the moon. But what is mystifying about Summer of Soul or the subtitle of this film, or when the revolution could not be televised, is how in the hell did I not know about this festival? Granted, I wasn't alive in 1969, not even close, but I still don't know before Questlove created this documentary how this festival came to be and how most people don't didn't know about it until this movie came out. But thankfully... Uh, Quest, Questlove or Amir Questlove uh, Thompson, his full name, uh, with the uh, the stage name in the middle there, uh, brought this movie to light, and it is a damn good thing he did. Number four of best movies of the year is another one that didn't get a huge theatrical release, but thanks to Netflix, a lot of people saw it. It is the movie Passing which is the directorial debut, at least in feature length, of actress Rebecca Hall. And it follows the unexpected reunion of two high school friends whose renewed acquaintance ignites a mutual obsession that threatens both of their carefully constructed realities. There are some other films that delve into this topic of two uh, friends who are also rivals, but this one incorporates the idea of two women of mixed race who pass as white or black depending on their 
preference. And it creates a lot of sociological um, conundrums and concerns as well with an amazing performance by both act lead actresses, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Naga, but most especially Tessa Thompson. And we get the, the perspective or more sort of a first person perspective of Tessa Thompson's characters, feelings and point of view. And it's shot in a very brilliant black and white Rebecca Hall probably chose black and white as a stylish choice, but I think in terms of the narrative and in terms of Tessa Thompson's character's point of view, the black and white really works and it would probably be a lesser film if it was in color. But again, that's not taking away from the brilliant performances by the two main actresses here, most especially Tessa Thompson, who I hope gets a nomination for best actress in a leading role. Number three of best films of 2021 is The Tragedy of Macbeth, another one that is also shot in a very stylish, stylistic uh, and stylish black and white. And this is a great adaptation of Macbeth, certainly not the first adaptation of Macbeth that's brought to the big screen, but it may be one of the best. It turns in a good, solid... Um, introverted performance by Denzel Washington, who despite maintaining a bit of unusual cool playing Macbeth certainly has rage building up within him. That is evident from both his words and also some of his actions when most of the other characters aren't seeing him. I think it was a great way for director Joel Cohen to display uh, Macbeth particularly coming from such a demeanored and charismatic actor like Denzel Washington. Also very good in this film is Frances McDormand, who plays Lady Macbeth. Again, another subdued performance, but one where rage is building up underneath the facade of their outward demeanor. And there are also some other... um, Fantastic supporting performances in this movie by the likes of Brendan Gleeson, Stephen Root, and uh, Corey Hawkins, amongst others. But the tragedy of Macbeth is certainly very memorable. Not to mention one of the best films of the year. Number two best film of the year, according to me, is Belfast. And while I admit that I do have some bias of this being the best film of the year, Um, or one of the best films of the year based on the fact that I am Irish. It is a semi-autobiographical tale about a young boy and his working-class Belfast family who experienced the tumultuous late 1960s in the city of which this movie is named. And uh, there's a great performance here by Jude Hill in one of his first performances in a movie ever. And this is a... Uh, a year not only where we've had a lot of great musicals, but also a lot of great uh, performances by actors who haven't quite um, had as much um, big screen exposure, if any. And Jude Hill, along with Rachel Zegler from West Side Story, is one of those people. Also very impressive in this film is somebody who I'd said before when I reviewed the Fifty Shades of Grey movie that This actor should never act again. But Jamie Dornan proved me wrong, and I will kindly serve myself a piece of humble pie, but he was great as 
Buddy's father in this movie as well. There are also some very good supporting performances by Sierra Hines, uh, Catriona Balf, and uh, Judy Dench. Judy Dench, the latter of whom probably gets has the least uh, screen time, but it's certainly powerful when she does. This movie was written and directed by Kenneth Branagh, and it's ironic to me that uh, the number three movie that's one of my best, that's what I think is one of the best films of the year, is a Shakespearean movie, which Kenneth Branagh could have directed. Shakespeare is certainly his bread and butter, but this Belfast movie may be one of the best films he ever directed and certainly the best film he ever wrote. It's mostly in black and white, and I think that black and white might have been a, a bit of a an ostentatious choice here, but it still works, and I loved Belfast. So... Before I get to my best film of the year, let me give you a very quick recap of what I think are the top 10 best films of the year. Number 10, according to me, The Last Duel. Number 9, West Side Story. Number 8, Encanto. Number 7, In the Heights. Number 6, Tick, Tick, Boom. Number 5, Summer of Soul or How the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Number 4, Passing. Number three, The Tragedy of Macbeth. And number two, Belfast. So, if I had a sound machine, I would give you a drum roll for my number one best film of the year. The number one best film of the year, according to me, is Worth. Worth is a movie that was a Netflix original, originally scheduled to be released in 2020, but we'll call it a 2021 movie because it was released on September 3rd, 2021 on Netflix. This is the true story about an attorney in Washington, D.C., whose name is Ken Feinberg, who's played by Michael Keaton, who battles against cynicism, bureaucracy, and politics to help the victims of 9-11. Worth addresses a lot of very tough questions about the 9-11 victims, how much they should be compensated for the loss of their loved ones, and how much a life is really worth. These are very tough questions, and Worth does not shy away from the complexity of these questions, particularly not only from a moral standpoint, but also from a legal standpoint. Michael Keaton, in four decades of great performances, turns in his best performance here as Ken Feinberg. And to start this movie off is probably one of the best representations of what living in New York City was like when the tragic events of 9-11, at least two of them, happened literally blocks away. And I think this may be the best dramatic interpretation of 9-11 as well as its aftermath and its repercussions that has ever been put on film. This movie reminded me a lot of Spotlight, not only because Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci acted in this film just like they did in the movie Spotlight, but it's also a movie that still created a compelling drama amongst people who worked in offices and had to work alongside very cold and unwavering words on paper, but still the emotion behind the work that Ken Feinberg and others did is still there and is still palpable. So that's why Worth 
is my favorite film of 2021. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And I have just given you my list of the best films of 2021. Now it's time for you to give you my worst films of 2021. This is going to encompass the rest of the show. And just a couple of disclaimers about the worst films of the year. Basically, not all of these films I paid money to see, technically, because I do have subscriptions to Netflix, Hulu, and several other streaming platforms, so I don't have to pay as much as I do when I go to the movies. But these movies still took time away from me that I am never going to get back. So now it's payback time, but there are a couple of rules. Rule number one, no independent films. There are some independent films that are far from perfect, but again, every filmmaker has to start somewhere. There are some filmmakers, particularly directors, who pour their blood, sweat, and tears into a movie that's, at the end of the day, not great, but I'm not going to piss on some of those films because they're not you know, up to speed with some of the more big-budget movies. So, no independent films. Second rule is I have to have seen these films myself. And I don't just put films on here that are uh, bad by reputation. Every film on this list is one that I've seen. And rule number three, they have to suck. So another thing I'm going to do is I'm not going to put this in a top 10 list. I'm going to do what Siskel and Ebert and later Ebert and Roper did. And I'm going to put these bad films into categories and finally reveal what I think is the worst film of the year. So my first uh, category is shameful sequels. These are sequels that nobody asked for, but we got anyway. And the first um, sequel on my list of shameful sequels is The Kissing Booth 3. This is a film where just about everyone for the first two Kissing Booth movies comes back. It's the summer, and there's a Kissing Booth at the very end. I think it's actually pretty audacious for Netflix to keep releasing these Kissing Booth movies, especially considering that with COVID um, alone, there will never be a Kissing Booth in any sort of carnival or any kind of public venue ever again. Yet we're constantly reminded about a time when kissing booths could be in carnivals and they served as a MacGuffin to this film trilogy. 
Now, I will admit that The Kissing Booth 2, I wouldn't have called one of the best films of 2020, but I did give it a knockout because I thought the performances were charming, and I thought that the story was at least a, a bit engrossing and far from predictable. I cannot say the same thing about The Kissing Booth 3. It is just bad. And the reason it's bad is because you have this girl, Elle Evans, who's played by Joey King, who who has to decide between going to Harvard so she can be with her boyfriend or going to USC to be with her best friend, who's a guy and who also happens to be the brother of her boyfriend. And... Tears are flowing down my cheeks about this woman being accepted to two prestigious schools and not knowing which one to choose. I, of course, am being sarcastic. There are also some other unnecessary subplots involving some former flames, as well as Elle's really incessant and obnoxious determination to stick to a list that she made when she was five years old. And... Everyone in this movie looks perfect. It just doesn't work as a sequel, and it didn't really need to be made, and it makes me feel bad that I gave my rating of a knockout to The Kissing Booth 2. In retrospect, I probably should have given it a checkout at best, but I'm sick of these films, and I think other people are too. The other entry into my list of shameful sequels is Home Sweet Home Alone. This is the sixth Home Alone movie when two is really enough. And this was a movie that no one asked for, but people got anyway. And the reason I call this a sequel is because it presumably takes place after the events of Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Uh, Solidified, in fact, by the fact that Devin Raytray reprises his role as Buzz McAllister, this time as a police officer. And after we get... Buzz McAllister as a police officer, the novelty of this film really wears off. You have some very likable actors in this film, including Ellie Kemper and Rob Delaney as a couple who believes that a young boy stole their creepy doll, which is worth $200,000, and you learn that the husband got laid off and the wife is barely making as a teacher. So you learn, you, you get this home alone from the perspective of these two people who are burglarizing a home when all they really had to do is just go up to the kid and ask him for their doll back, which they realize after all of these pratfalls that are painful to watch and are not funny in the slightest. Now, I like Ellie Kemper and Rob Delaney. I also liked Archie Yates in the film Jojo Rabbit. There are, others, there are some other actors in here that I also like, like Kenan Thompson and Timothy Simons. But overall, this film is a dud. It has one really bad fart joke and the shenanigans that happen when the burglars try to break in just look sadistic as opposed to slapstick worth in and of itself. My other category of worst films of the year uh, are under a category that's called Enough Already, Ryan Reynolds. Now, Ryan Reynolds has had a pretty good year having been in three films, but none of them were particularly great. The first one on my list is Free Guy. And Free Guy is a movie about a... NPC, which is a non-playable character inside a video game that who is a bank teller who discovers 
that he is actually in a brutal open world video game. This is a concept that I think would have worked without Ryan Reynolds' smug persona. And if he had been taken out of it, as well as one really odd cameo in the end, I think this movie would have been a lot better, but instead it just really missed the mark as far as I was concerned. And there were also some other capable actors like uh, Taika YTT, who's way too over the top. At one point, he takes an axe and tries to destroy his video game universe, at least destroying the cloud, when all he could do is really unplug. Also, Ryan Reynolds is obnoxiously smug, and this movie would have worked a lot better if they had actually had someone who was likable in it, like, for example, Paul Rudd. That would have been great. But Paul uh, Ryan Reynolds' mug smugging just gets old after a while. It also gets old in my next entry to the category Enough Already Ryan Reynolds, which is The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. This is another example of a sequel that no one asked for and no one particularly liked or even remembered. So Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard has Samuel L. Jackson and Ryan Reynolds reprising their role as the Hitman and the Bodyguard, respectively. Interestingly enough, there are some great actors who take some screen time in here, but none particularly memorably, or at least they manage to be sometimes even more obnoxious than Ryan Reynolds is. Ryan Reynolds is still his usual smug self, but Salma Hayek, who is usually a great actress, tries to do comedy here, and the lines that are written for her in this film by Philip Murphy and Brandon Murphy, who wrote the screenplay, are just obnoxious. You have Salma Hayek swearing a lot, and unlike Samuel L. Jackson, Salma Hayek is not a good swearer. In other words, she doesn't have convincing dialogue when she swears, and she also makes constant references to her breasts, which, coming from a guy is funny, coming from a woman who has a good set, let me just say it, (laughs) let me get it out of the way right now, it's not funny. (laughs) And I was really sweating when I said that, so forgive me women who are listening to this. Also, Antonio Banderas is miscast as a man by the name of Aristotle Papadopoulos, and Morgan Freeman can't even save this dreck. So, Ryan Reynolds had three films, but three out of three were pretty bad. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And continuing with my list of worst films of 2021 is my next category, which is Rotten Remakes. My first entry into the Rotten Remakes is a gender-swapped remake of She's All That, and it's called, drumroll please, He's All That. And it is just as bad as the premise, not to mention the title, would say. You have a a girl who is a social media influencer like uh, Olivia Jade. In fact, she kind of looks like Olivia Jade, too. She's not Olivia Jade, but she is played by an actress named Addison Rae, who we probably won't hear about in about five years. And she is given a task to, uh, to give 
a makeover to a guy named Tanner Buchanan, who is a great looking guy and who doesn't need a makeover. And this movie takes the movie She's All That, which wasn't even that original to begin with, but had some charm to it and makes an even more paint by numbers remake. And I think that She's All That is a loose adaptation of My Fair Lady, which I got to see during the holiday break and I loved it. Uh, but She's All That was a decent modernized high school remake of My Fair Lady. He's All That is an indecent, unnecessary, and really lame and shallow remake of She's All That that nobody asked for, and not even the appearances by the likes of Matthew Lillard and Rachel Lee Cook from the original film, albeit playing different characters, could save this film. Another entry into my rotten remakes is Cinderella. And Cinderella isn't exactly a remake of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical or the Walt Disney film, but if you've seen one Cinderella, you know how the story goes. It's directed and written by Kay Cannon and stars Camila Cabello as Cinderella. And from the very beginning, this is why it's very ironic to me that this was directed by a woman. Um, when Cinderella is in her rags cleaning around the house, her cleavage uh, can be shown. So you would never mistake Camilla Cabello as somebody who has it rough. In addition to that, Kay Cannon made the big mistake of making this Cinderella, which aired exclusively on Prime Video, a jukebox musical. So it starts out with the villagers singing, We Are a Part of a Rhythm Nation, which doesn't exactly make sense in the grand scheme of things, but the worst offender of shoehorned popular song in a movie was when the prince, uh, who's played in this film by Nicholas Galitzine, enters the ball and his potential mates get together and sing What a Man by Salt and Peppa featuring En Vogue. And the second that one of the princesses starts rapping, I want to take a minute or two to give much respect to, and so on and so forth, I just immediately buried my face in my hands. You had a lot of people who were giving it their all, but again, it's very predictable. There was nothing that this movie Cinderella did other than give a Cinderella um, jukebox musical that none of us have asked for. My next category of worst films of 2016, excuse me, 2016, I'm having flashbacks to an even worse year. Worst remakes of 2021 is a category I like to call horrendous horror. And my first entry into this is the M. Night Shyamalan movie Old. This movie is a B movie that had the budget of an A movie and the result was just quizzical um, at best. Uh M. Night Shyamalan wrote the screenplay, which was based on a graphic novel, Sandcastle, by Pierre Oscar Levy and Frederick Peters, which I'd really like to see. And this movie was almost like somebody had 10 different cameramen, and they, they all gave each individual actor the... Um, their own kind of motivations that had nothing to do with the story itself. 
And old also had some draggy parts, which actually put me to sleep, but it also had some jaw droppingly stupid lines. Like for instance, there's a doctor in the movie who's played by Rufus Sewell, who's trying to treat somebody who's pregnant on this beach where people find that when they get in the, uh, in the water, they get old prematurely. And he starts thinking about a movie with Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando in it. And I found myself more interested in what that movie was than what was on the screen. So old was very poorly acted, even more poorly written. And probably the writing was the culprit here. So that's in my list. Uh, old is my list of horrendous horror. My next, um, entry into horrendous horror is a movie that's called malignant. And this was a movie that was also meant to be a B movie. And it would have worked if it had embraced its campiness a lot more. Instead, you had a lead actress named Annabelle Wallace, who plays a woman who doesn't realize that she was born a twin and that her twin was actually resides in her backside. And also she um, doesn't realize that she has a bad side to her until her bad twin takes over. Now on paper, this seems like a really good concept on screen. It's really bad. And it's probably because Annabelle Wallace does not act very well in this film. There are scenes where shocking things happen. Like for instance, there's one scene where a dead body falls from the ceiling and Annabelle Wallace sees that and goes, Oh, just like that. Not, you know, not screaming at the top of her lungs, which is exactly what I do. So I think this movie could have been fun or it could have been scary, but instead it just ended up not being either. My next category for worst films of 2021 is only if your children have been bad. And this was a list of worst children's movies of the, uh, the year. The first one is the boss baby, which is a movie that I did not like, but was still nominated for an Academy award for best, um, uh, animated feature, which fortunately it lost this one better not be nominated for best, anything best screenplay, best animated feature, best song, nothing. Cause it was pretty bad. It's where the Templeton brothers have become adults Yeah, the boss baby in the original became an adult and drifted away from each other, but a new boss baby with a cutting-edge approach is about to bring them together again and inspire a new family business. So the old uh, boss baby becomes a boss baby again by going back up to heaven and sort of reclaiming his status as a boss baby, which is already really bad. You also had Jeff Goldblum kind of underplaying the villain here, who surprise, surprise, on a twist from the original film, which was admittedly done better in that first film, he actually ends up being a baby. And he's just really obnoxious. He either underplays it or he's just obnoxious, or probably both at the same time. Either way, if you must see this film I would probably say watch the first film, not the second. The other movie in Only If Your Children Have Been Bad is a film called The J-Team, which was a Paramount Plus original, and it was all bad. This is the uh, feature debut of Jojo Siwa, who is a YouTube star. And even if you are into some of the fashion, dancing, and glitter for which Jojo Siwa is best known, 
you'll still hate this movie because it is so predictable. And the whole plot of it is, Hey gang, let's form our own dance troupe. It, it just doesn't really work here. And also Tisha Campbell is supposed to be the bad guy, but she actually says one line that I felt in my heart. Tisha Campbell says to Jojo Siwa, who basically plays herself, your personality is poking me in the eye. And Tisha Campbell is supposed to be the bad guy here or the villain here. And also, if you don't like your dance teacher, just join another dance troupe. It's not that hard. And especially in the suburbs where, where Jojo Siwa lives in this movie, she could do that. She could join another dance studio. She doesn't necessarily have to have other people who presumably don't know how to dance join her troupe. But either, either way, it's very predictable and very, very corny. And now I'm going to get to my worst film of 2021. This is a film for which I had high expectations because of its budget, because of its cast, and because of its writer and director. It should have been much better, but it was really, really a disappointment. It's a film that is supposed to be a satire, but ends up falling flat on its face by too many subplots, and it seems like the actors were just all doing their own thing without any dedication to the story at hand. The, the movie that I think is the worst film of 2021 is Don't Look Up. This is a movie about two low-level astronomers who must go on a giant media tour to warn mankind of an approaching comet that will destroy planet Earth. While that sounds like a great concept, it tried to make this comet that's heading towards Earth a metaphor for climate change, and it doesn't really work. I think that... First of all, if a comet was actually coming towards Earth and there was a, a chance that life would be destroyed as we know it, I don't think that the government or the media would respond to it with a collective meh, like this movie is trying to tell you that it will. Also, there's one scene that almost seems to defy logic, uh, where there's an ambitious... Um, multi-billionaire who's, who's based on, I think, Leon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, who's played by Mark Rylance, who convinces the president himself to not knock this comet off its course because it has literally billions of dollars worth of material within it. First of all, he's not exactly a scientist. How does he know this? And secondly, what's even more... Uh, um boggling is the fact that an actual doctor just listens to Mark Rylance say this. And he just says, okay, that sounds really good. Well, let me tell you something. If a million dollars worth of bricks landed on your head, they would probably kill you. Does that mean you, I would have somebody drop a million dollars worth of gold bricks on my head? So I'd be rich. No, it doesn't. So th the cast, I haven't even scratched the surface of why this movie doesn't work, but it had too many great actors trying too hard to be funny. And when they weren't funny, they were just illogical. And they also, the, the people who are supposed to be the moral and mental compass of this film, like Jennifer Lawrence and Rob Morgan, not to mention Leonardo DiCaprio's character are supposed to 
insert logic into this film and be the sane people in an insane world. That could have worked, but instead, there are times where they're given a piece of news and like M. Night Shyamalan's character in Old, they say something that's completely off topic and something they shouldn't be thinking about at that moment. So... I'm really disappointed in this cast, as well as Adam McKay. This is his first bad film, and it doesn't include Will Ferrell doing fart jokes, which is really too bad. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.